Hi, everyone. Raghu, I'm back. And I am back with somebody uh, again, uh, somebody who I have not met before till this second, Valerie Kaur. Valerie, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so grateful to be here with you. <laughs> I uh, uh, just, we just started talking, really. And I was going to say, well, first of all, we met through a, a mutual friend, actually, uh, Gagen Levy. So thank you, Gagen, because I didn't know. He said, you must meet Valerie and you must read her new book. And everybody out there, uh, See No Stranger, which was, I think it's going to be out available in a week, right? On June 16th, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, a Memoir and Manifesto of Revolutionary Love. And um, yeah, I had no idea. I, I have been with this book for the last number of days. And I just got to thank you on so many different levels, Valerie. Mm. Um, on the level of inviting me into your family, one thing it did for me, you know, I have spent, we don't know each other, but I've spent a lot of years in India, like forever, every year I go to India, just about. And um, because of the relationship that I had in India with the, with families, with Indian families who took us in when we went, we were kids and we went to see Neem Karoli Baba. We went back with Ram Das when he went back the second time. Just stop me if I'm not making sense, okay? I'm, I'm assuming stuff. So. Um, so these families took us in. There was one in particular in this area. Uh, in India, it's, uh, the town is called Nainital. And it's, uh, you know, about seven, eight hour drive from Delhi up north. And that whole area is known as Deva Bhumi, actually, Land of the Gods. And that's where we spent a lot of time with Neem Karoli Baba, you know, in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. So one of the, there was one man who was Ram Dass's, like, in long, long, he was the original translator when Ram Dass met Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, we call him. And his name was K.K. Shah, and he was told, bring Ram Dass to your house. And he brought Ram Dass back to his house then. And the power of his uh, merging into an Indian family, which we in the West do not understand real family. Okay, And I know you know that. And, but the way in which we were brought into K.K.'s family as we went back, and he took us into that family and others, uh, just, starting to, just reading through this, he passed right after Ramdas earlier this year. So it was a, it was a major deal for us. And reading this book, I just went right back into spending the kind of time that I spent in, in these families' houses. As, as you know, it, you are family, then you are family, no different than brother, sister, mother, father, everybody. Yes. You know? And so this is just spectacular, the way that you bring us, the reader, into the family. And of course, my identification with it was uh, profound, shall we say. And... I mean, I don't want to get all mushy, but I'm not known for being mushy. But boy, the honesty with which the story is being told from you is is really quite something. It really is. And uh, 
I just want to go through and, uh, you know, I have some, I could be here with you, Valerie, for about three, four hours easily in terms <laughs> of everything I picked out that I wanted to, you know, to hear from you. But I guess we should just start with you, uh, which is in the book, but, you know, um, not to go through the whole thing, but just you were born in the Central Valley in California and just a little how your ancestors came and how you came to be in this incredible that, you know, growing up as an American, yet the power of your family mm. was, is just self-evident in everything that you do, that you did, that you do, and I'm sure will do in the future. Well, let me just first say thank you so much, brother. I think my deepest hope for this book uh, was exactly this, that I would be able to speak uh, and summon your deepest wisdom about what it means to be in community, to be in family, to grieve together, to rage together, to breathe together, to labor together, to face the injustices of this world together. And the fact that you could have that experience with me through the page, I mean, that that is the that was my hope for the book. So this is um, a gift that you've given me to accompany me in this way. Um, mm. I begin the book, uh, the book is called a memoir and a manifesto. So it's, a, you know, weaving this, these, this tapestry of stories, but offering these stories as a way to unspool a framework for revolutionary love, how we might ground our lives and our movements in love. And I first was inaugurated into a way of orienting to the world with love in my childhood. Um, I grew up on the farmlands of Clovis in the Central Valley of California. My grandfather had sailed by steamship from India, from Punjab, to San Francisco in 1913. And it was a time where white nativist forces, not unlike today, were just raging in this country. And so uh, while Ellis Island was the symbol for inclusion, Angel Island on the West Coast was the symbol of exclusion for Asian immigrants. So he was, he was a turbaned, bearded, sick grandfather. Well, my grandfather, he was young then, he was 20-something, thrown behind bars, was about to be deported. A white man, a lawyer, Henry Marshall, the records show, intervened and filed a writ of habeas corpus that released my grandfather. And I like to think about that act as the first act of revolutionary love, the first act of solidarity that my grandfather had experienced on the soil. And so he, it made my life possible. So I was raised on the land that my grandfather farmed. Um, my, my father was born on that land. I was born on that land. And just as I felt such deep connection to the soil and to what it meant to be an American through my grandfather's stories, I also felt this very deep connection to my ancestral home in India. And it was my family and my, my other grandfather, who I called Papaji, my mother's father, who imparted me the stories from the Sikh faith. And uh, the story of Guru Nanak, who first inscribed in our hearts, he's the founder of the Sikh faith, the first guru, I see no enemy. I see no stranger. Nako bedi, nebagana. I am called to look upon all around me and say, you are a part of me I do not yet know. You are a part of me I do not yet know. 
And Papaji used to say, my grandfather, you said, this is, you know, this love is a dangerous path. Love is dangerous business. In America, they say, I love you. I love you. I love you. All talk, no action. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, if you, if you see someone through the eyes of love, if you, if you bring everyone into your family, then I must let your grief into my heart. And if you are in harm's way, I must be willing to fight for you in the face of injustice. So I came to know it and experience it as a path of revolutionary love. And Sikhs are a warrior people. And the Sikh faith, the ideal is the Sant Sapai, the warrior sage. The, the warrior fights, the sage loves revolutionary love. And so we are called to look upon the fires in our lives and the fires in this world with a warrior's heart and a saint's eyes. That is what, so I was a little girl with two long braids who liked to ride tractors on the fields at my gran, of my family's farm. But my grandfather, when I heard from my first racial slurs when I was a kid, he would look at me and say, my love, you, my dear, you are a warrior. And I would just nod, okay, Papaji. He said, don't abandon your post. And really all the years since, my entire life as a civil rights activist, as a lawyer, as an organizer has been this vow that I made to my grandfather not to abandon my post, to show up even in the fires, uh, committed to fighting, laboring, and revolutionary love. Mm. Oh, my. Oh. What a path eh, that was set out for you. It's just incredible. Karma and how that all happened. Mm-hmm. Wow. So maybe a little... Uh, um, Something about, I mean, you, you've t- certainly explained it out a little bit, revolutionary love, but there's a part later in the book that um, choosing to let enjoy is a revolutionary act. Uh, that's a powerful statement uh, in, in so many different ways. Maybe just talk about that a little bit. Oh, joy is our greatest act of resistance. Joy returns us to everything that is good and beautiful and worth fighting for. And I know it's hard to find joy in a moment like this when we're seeing tear gas and batons and flash grenades in the street when our cities are burning and turning into battlefields while the president behaves like a dictator while people, millions of people are rising up to say not in our name in the wake of George Floyd's murder. What role does joy have in this moment? And I just remember the, the night of election night, 2016. It was the, one of the worst nights of my life. And my son was tugging on my sleeve and saying, mommy, dance time. And I thought, no, no, not on a light night like this. We can't dance on a night like this. When I could feel all the darkness that was coming, he says, mommy, you promised. <laughs> and so we start playing the music. And at first I'm just swaying, looking really miserable and then my son starts to spin around and then he jumps in my arms and then he starts laughing and then I start laughing and I'm throwing up him up in the air and I'm laughing on election night. <laughs> and I realize like, oh, that's how we will last in this labor. That the labor for justice has actually gone on long before we were born and will go long, long after we die. I believe the meaning of life is to labor, to do our part in laboring for a just world rooted in joy because joy is how we last. And so even these nights, even after the night I watched the video of George Floyd, his, his murder, the officer's knee in the neck, not one minute, not three minutes, not five, but eight minutes, 
even as I could feel that grief seize my own body and my own heart, I, even as I could feel rage rush through me, I knew that all of those were important emotions in the labor of love. I say that joy is the gift of love. Grief is the price of love. Rage is the force that protects which is what that, is, that which is loved. And so all of these emotions, I think laboring in love is allowing all of those to come through you and yet still finding ways to return to joy. So even these last days, we still do dance time every night. And that gives me a little bit more energy to face the morning and continue the, the good work. But a major word here is choose, choice. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that we That's are, it. something comes in the moment and we can go one way or we can go another. We can go several different ways, most likely, depending on our general self-interest and how powerful that is in the moment. But choice. Yes. Yes, I think in this country, the problem is not with love. It's the way we talk about it. We talk about it as if it is not a choice. We talk about it as if it is this passive thing that happens to us, like we fall in love, like we're falling into something. Um, uh, love, we talk about it as a rush of emotion, a rush of feeling. And I soon learned, it was actually the moment when my son was first born, he was placed on my chest and I was feeling that rush of emotion as the oxytocin was just coursing through my body. My mother, in the meantime, <laughs> while I'm sobbing and shaking and feeling and falling in love, she's like opening up her bag and taking out the doll and Joel and getting ready to feed me, like mm -hmm. feeding her baby while I'm feeding mine. And I looked at my mother and I realized oh, I'd never seen her as a warrior before, that my mother had never stopped laboring for me, from my birth to my son's birth, now my daughter's birth, that my mother knew what I was just waking up to, that love is more than a rush of feeling. Love is sweet labor, fierce, bloody, imperfect, life-giving, a choice that we make over and over and over again. And isn't that what our greatest spiritual teachers and social reformers taught us? And isn't that would anyone who's done the work of caretaking, caring for babies or families or the elderly or your friends, everyone knows that it is a choice we continue to make, to show up, to summon our bravery, to, to dare to love when it gets hard. And so I call love revolutionary when we choose to love beyond what evolution requires, when we choose to love those who look different from us when we choose to love even our opponents, even those who disagree with us or hurt us, when we choose to love ourselves who we too often neglect, then, then love begins to play a role in personal transformation tethered to social and political mm -hmm. transformation. Mm -hmm. And that is what we are seeing now, Raghu. That is mm -hmm. what we are seeing now. Millions of people in the streets daring to love George Floyd as their brother, Breonna Taylor as their sister, Nina Pop as their sister. I mean, to love like that means to be willing to risk your own life as my mother would risk her life for me, mm. you know? And that's what we're doing in the middle of the pandemic. We are rising up to try to change the nation as we know it. And that's what gives me hope is that this revolution is rooted in love. And this offering I'm making with this book is giving people tools to stay in the labor with love. Yeah. And that kind of unconditionality, of course, suggests courage in all of this. Big time. And um, this is a, a story that I've told many, many times on this podcast. 
And it happened with a, a friend who was with uh, Maharaj Krishna Das, which um, maybe, I'm not sure if you know who he is, but he's our resident chant guy, because uh, that's the big practice that we brought back from our the bhakti yoga tradition that we come out of, is kirtan, so, which is endemic to all the traditions, basically, in, in India. But, um, but it is bhakti tradition, right? And the tradition of, of devotion to the guru is what a, a big part of that is, guru's grace, uh, guru kripa, and one day he was in Mumbai um, and uh, with Maharaji, who came over to see him and a couple other people in a in a hotel in the middle of Mumbai. It was kind of weird. Uh, and he just turned to Krishna Das, uh, and th there was a translator, as there usually was, and he said, "Krishna Das, courage is a very big thing." And the translator, who was an you know, old-time Indian devotee, said, But Maharaji, you know, it's Guru's grace is, you know, but there's nothing to do, or whatever, you know, something like that. Maharaji turned to Krishnas and, and emphatically went, Courage is a very big thing. And Krishnas said, you know, when he tells the story, he says, all my life I've had this moment, you know, that moment is embedded in me in the roughest, roughest times that I may have encountered or will encounter. And uh, I love the story, and again, I tell it all the time because I think it is so vastly important. It is not outside of a quote-unquote spiritual blah-blah. You know, it's not something that happens outside of that. There's only one thing going on, and you expressed it in terms of working on ourselves while we do the kind of social action that's needed every moment. You're not waiting for anything. But to me, it's because of courage and the, the idea of the unconditionality that we need to offer. That's it. And what does courage look like in this moment? One of my uh, critiques of the spirituality, self-help, wellness world is that uh, it too often allows for spiritual bypassing mm -hmm. to let people believe that working on their own liberation is also liberating the world. And you are part of the world. And so certainly that's where change must take root. But if you are only loving yourself, it can very easily um, make you blind to the ways that you are complicit in institutions of power that are oppressing and crushing the black and brown and indigenous people around you. And so when we lay out the framework for revolutionary love, it's loving ourselves only is escapism. Loving only our opponents is self-loathing. Mm. Loving only others is ineffective. We need all three practices in our lives. How are we loving ourselves? But how are we loving others? And how are we showing love even to our opponents, insisting that they too, they're not monsters, that they're human beings who are frail, and that our goal is not just to unseat them from power, but to remake a world where they no longer hurt us and therefore no longer are complicit in oppression. And so uh, I think about this moment, you know, and I, and I think a lot about those of us who are not black, who are finding, you know, 
ourselves either awaken or waking even more to what courage looks like for us right now. And the image I have is the image of Officer Thao, the Asian American officer who stood by and did nothing as the white officer pressed knee into George Floyd's neck. Are we like Officer Thao? <laughs> Are, are, are we keeping our heads down, following the rules, just turning a blind eye as, uh, as the Black people around us are disproportionately being killed by this pandemic and by state violence? Or are we like my mentor, Tommy Woon, Asian American elder who is battling cancer and yet because George Floyd was murdered four blocks away from his house in Minneapolis, mm. put on the mask, and headed into the streets and risked his own life to say, not in my name. To my black sisters, brothers, and siblings, he said, you are grieving, but you do not grieve alone. I think about what that means, right? For non-black people of color, what does it mean for us to have courage? And then what does it mean for our white allies? And what I wanna say to the white folks who are just uh, awoke and, and uh, wanting to show up is that, what does it mean not just to be allies, but to be accomplices, to conspire with us to break these chains of oppression. Our nation's history of white supremacy and racism is not your fault, but you have inherited a system that is designed to benefit you. And so your role is not just to post the hashtag, right? Your role is to think, what am I doing in my own institutions to advance the wellness and the dignity and the freedom of the black and brown and indigenous people in my own life, in my workplace, in my uh, school, in my home, in my community, in my, in my meditation center? <laughs> How am I centering their wisdom and their wellness? And that may mean relinquishing some power, exercising the privilege you have in order to play your role in this time of great transition in our country. That's what courage looks like right now, brother. I really believe, and I'm seeing it. I'm seeing white folks putting their bodies in front of black folks who are kneeling in front of an army of police officers. Like, so what do we do after the streets die down? When we go back into our institutions to continue that kind of bravery, that kind of wisdom, to be literate in our role in birthing a new society. Mm. Yeah. One has to dig very deeply inside themselves. Yes. To just turn their perspective around. Yes. Yeah. And that it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. And this is why it's like, it's okay if it hurts. If it feels like, oh, if you just notice what this moment is doing to our bodies, we are carrying so much grief and sadness and triggering past traumas. We are carrying so much rage. Like my veins have been burning from anger. I, I've been carrying fear as I see the National Guard outside of my son's school and on my street and helicopters overhead are my brown kids safe as Venice and Los Angeles becomes militarized. I think that's changing now, but all of what we are cycling through is so intense. Yeah. And yeah. I ask folks just to let, let yourself feel it, let it change you and ask what information are these emotions giving me? What information is it giving me? Because then I can take that information and know that in the next moment when I am ready to show up, I'll know exactly how and where and why and mm. when. If I just trust, you move through it together. Um, we'll keep on this courage thing because in the book, <laughs> you must tell this story of sitting in a diner nearby a few gentlemen uh, 
I'm not sure where you were in the country. Manhattan Beach. That was Manhattan Beach? Yeah, I thought you were going to tell me us. it was like, uh, you know, somewhere in Mississippi or Georgia or something. Well, anyhow, neither here nor there. Um, uh, well, do tell the story. I mean, you did some, something that, you know, I just thought myself being in that same spot, uh, that would have been very difficult to go deep inside myself to encounter these people. But tell the story. I was sitting by myself midday in a restaurant bar uh, writing about revolutionary love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and honestly, Raghu, when I heard the words spouted at the table next to me, I was like, oh, oh, do I have to? Oh, but look what I'm writing. Oh, I have to live it. Okay. <laughs> um, and the table next to me, there were a group of what, about five white men older. And I heard the word sand nigger over and over again. I'm sorry to, to have to say it out loud. And I stood up and I thought, I want to leave, but I had to think, okay, I'm practicing that in reference to you, my let's, family. let's be clear. No, no, they were just spouting it. They, they were, were telling stories. Oh. They were they were loud enough for everyone to hear. And uh -huh, I was right. the only brown person. So I, I walked over to them and I thought, these are, these are my uncles. These are my uncles, right? You are a part of me. I do not yet know. It is hard to wonder about people who might disgust you, but this is a practice. It's a choice, right? It's a different way of seeing other, other people. So I was like, these are my uncles. So I went over, I said, you know, I've, I'm hearing this word and there are people who have used this word to beat and kill members of my community and family. I just need to, you to know what that word means to me. And I told them the story of Balbir Singh Sodi, a man who was like, who I called uncle, who was the first person killed in a hate crime after 9-11. I was 20 years old. His murder made me an activist. And as I told them that story, I said, you know, it, I could have called you all bigots, but I came here because you are my uncles and I am your sister, I'm your niece, I'm your daughter. And that, begin, that began to shift the energy at the table as some of them looked down and looked ashamed. They all left the table. One man remained behind and his name was Steve. And he said, look, you're not a sand nigger. He's not. But if you line up 10 black people, three of them are people and the rest of them are the N-word. And I said, I'm sorry, you don't believe every human being is a person. And he said, no, I, I don't. And he shook my hand and he left. And I just wanted to scream. I wanted to wash my hands. I didn't know that the words Black Lives Matter just wasn't true on its face to someone like Steve. And I thought, yes, you know, Raghu, it was brave for me to walk over. And yes, it was important for me to have that confrontation and that conversation that changed me in other ways. But I'm not quite sure if it was, that it was safe for me to do so. And this is why I believe all of us have different roles in the, mm -hmm. in, in the labor of revolutionary love. Right now, when so many black and brown folks are, are uh, we have the boot on our neck right now, so many of us, our job is to love ourselves well so that our white allies who are becoming accomplices can sit with people like Steve and listen to them because beneath the slogans and the sound bites, when I replayed the conversation over and over again in my mind, I began to hear pain mm. and suffering, how painful it is to live in a world where you believe there are subhumans all out to get you. It is not equal to my rage. It is not equal to my suffering, but it is a form of suffering that someone needs to tend to 
in order to transition this America with so many disaffected white folks who need to believe that there is a place for the multiracial nation that is being born, that there's a, there's a place for them. Mm. And you know what I learned from that conversation? <laughs> that the word nigger is inside of sand nigger. So all this time as an activist, I sort of gave all of our struggles equal weight. Like there's women's rights and indigenous rights and Sikh and Muslim and, and black folks are over here. And we're all just sort of in all of our struggles intersect and all of our liber liberation movements are bound up with each other. That moment changed me. That moment I woke up to the fact that every society has been organized along a hierarchy of human value. But the oldest hierarchy of human value on US soil depends on the assumption that black people are disposable. But anti-black racism is central to our, uh, how white supremacy works in this country. And therefore, as a sick American, I must center black lives in my own work if I am to liberate my own people. And I have to do it not just because that's how I get liberation, I have to do it because I love them because I see them as my sisters and brothers and I love them. And so that's why I believe it is time, it is time, it is time for us not just to say Black Lives Matter, but to really show up with courage and, and figure out what that means in our own lives to center Black liberation in everything we do. Mm. And one thing that's so uh, pointed for me in that story, uh, when you talk about you started to realize his suffering. Yes. It's not your suffering, but there's his suffering. At another point in the book, I seem to remember you talking about um, you cannot compare suffering. It leads down uh, an erroneous path. I can't remember what that was, um, and maybe you can uh, elucidate it, but, but that is uh, so very true. But it also allows us to get near being able to to even be with somebody else, hear their story. If you can get some feeling of the, the causes and conditions that made them who they are and the fact of, of their suffering, and it's a horrendous thing that they're suffering about, but they're still suffering. So that, that opens up a door, I think. Yes. And I want to say we, we dare to listen to our opponents, like Steve, <laughs> not because it is moral, not only because it's moral, but because it is strategic. Mm. It is pragmatic. It shows us that our goal is not just to unseat bad actors, but to change the conditions that authorize them to hurt us in the first place. I want to know what Steve is listening to on the radio, who, whose policies order his life, what voices um, encourage his radicalization. I, I want to gain information so I know how I can hold up a vision of a nation that includes him too. So he's not just isolated from me pointing my sword in his direction. Mm -hmm. This really, um, I really learned this, I think at, at Guantanamo Bay, I was at Guantanamo to report on the military commissions as a legal observer. And I just, I couldn't believe that the soldiers around me were so casual. You know, there's a Starbucks, on, on the military base, there's a tennis court, there's an Irish pub. And I was sitting in the Irish pub trying to write about, in my journal, trying to write about the um, dissonance of this place where we had committed murder and homicide and torture and 
unspeakable violence on people held without trial or without charge. And a soldier plopped down in front of me. He says, I see you writing in your book. I see you judging us. And I say, well, what do you make of being here? And he says, um, you know, the detainees, they throw feces at us like every day. They make us, they make it easy for us to hate them. They get more freedom than we do. And I wanted to get up and leave, right? And once again, my initial reaction was just, I need to head for the door. I thought, okay, wonder is an act of will. I had to choose, find the courage to choose to wonder about this young man. And so I finally asked why. And he starts to tell me his story that he enlisted in the military in the wake of 9-11 to try to do something good for his country, that he feels helpless as he's watching his brothers in the trenches get blown up abroad while he's here trying to guard prisoners, that he he's trying to search for meaning, that he is lonely and he is frail. And I began to see his suffering. And I thought, you know, he didn't create Guantanamo. I didn't create Guantanamo. We inherited Guantanamo. We inherited these systems of power that gave us different roles inside of uh, a system of oppression. And that the goal is to liberate all of us from Guantanamos. And I thought Guantanamo can only exist because we have the system of mass incarceration on U.S. soil, the system that makes us believe that quarantining black and brown bodies will somehow make us safer. And so that was the moment when I really woke up to the idea of like, we need to move beyond resistance into reimagining institutions of power. How can we remake and reimagine what policing is, what criminal justice is, what our our economy is, um, what our democracy is in such a way that liberates all of us, all of us. So that's why I I don't think it's just moral. It is is strategic. It is how we Mm. remake the world. Can I read, I want to read something from from the book, uh, which is central, See No Stranger, Loving Others. Uh, seeing no stranger begins in wonder. And this is a common theme, the theme of wonder, which you just said takes courage to get there. And I think that that's uh, core to everything that you're saying. It is to look upon the face of anyone, anyone, and choose to say, you are a part of me I do not yet know. Wonder is the wellspring for love. Who we wonder about determines whose stories we hear and whose joy and pain we share. Who we grieve with, who we sit with and weep with, determines who we organize with and advocate for. When a critical mass of people come together to wonder about one another, grieve with one another, and fight with and for one another, we begin to build the solidarity needed for collective liberation and transformation a solidarity rooted in love. Just beautifully well said. I, I can't. Yeah, that's not, it. Yeah, that's it, right? And isn't that what's happening now in our nation like never before? You know, Raghu, when I was a little girl, I had this, I had Dr. King's um, voice in my ear. Mm. I, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And so as a little girl, I had this picture in my mind of this like line, the straight line of linear progress, you know, like my grandfather's sacrifice so that I could be free. And then 
that story began to shatter in the aftermath of 9-11. And then again, in in the middle of the 2016 election season, I realized I had given birth to a little boy, a brown boy with long hair who was growing up in a nation more dangerous for him than it was for me or even for my grandfather when he first arrived. So what is progress? What is this all for? And right now, I know there's so many of our Black sisters and brothers and siblings who are looking at this moment and saying, this was like 1968, and this was like 1992. So I, I, I feel like if we, if we have a, a notion of progress as linear, then we are sliding back into darkness. But if we think of the story of America as one long labor, we have a different view. A series of expansions and contractions, expansions and contractions that progress during birthing labor is cyclical, not linear. So every turn through the cycle, it may feel like 68, it may feel like 1992, may feel like 2001 for some of us, but every turn through the cycle brings us a little bit closer to what wants to be born. Only if we are breathing and pushing. And I think now every, every turn through the cycle has opened up a little bit more space for equality and justice. And what is new now that I have never seen before mm. in those previous cycles is so many of us, not just black folks on the front line, so many of us yeah, showing amazing. up, rising up. I don't know how many more turns through the cycle it will take, but I do know that like the body and labor, we carry knowledge of the movements that came before us. And the spiritual teachers and the wisdom seekers before us that we know how to labor. We know how to love. Revolutionary love is when we are brave enough to see no stranger, brave enough to grieve and fight for one another and reimagine the world together. And so so that's why I offer the wisdom of the midwife. If this is a long labor, then we've got to be breathing and pushing And then breathing again, because the midwife doesn't say breathe once and push the rest of the way, right? She says, breathe and push and then breathe again, my love. Mm -hmm. Breathe again, my love. And I think that's what so many folks who are part of your community and this network have to offer are tools for how to center oneself, drop into one's body, care for one's flesh, breathe deeply so that we can show up once again for the next push. Mm -hmm. Um. Let's talk about one aspect which uh, is actually quite difficult for me, and you really work through it in the book, and it's around rage. Um, yes. Actually, I, I want to. Where's this quote from you around anger? Actually, that my fear of anger taught me nothing. Your fear of that anger will teach you nothing, also. Audrey Lord. Yes. Um, so this is something that I've had to work with. Again, it's it's not something I've been shy about talking about on the podcast with different people. Uh, anger and the fear of it. So that in circumstances, as we are discussing right now, where this rage just naturally unfolds when you see such basic, you know, this this video that we all saw, which is just propelled us into this moment. And then there's also, so there's in me a fear of going there because of knowing the harm I have done myself and uh, regarding anger that was uh, all all about self-interest one way or the other. 
righteousness, whatever it may be. So I think this is not that uncommon, you know. So I think it's good to talk about. Uh, uh, do you call it dharmic uh, rage, or I, I can't remember, but something like divine, that. divine rage. Divine, yeah, there you go. <laughs> divine rage. Yes, I think this is one of the offerings of this. You know, pe- folks have been calling it um, revolutionary love, the new nonviolence, a new framework for how to rise in nonviolent revolution. And what Marx said as different is that there is a role for rage. There are 10 core practices of revolutionary love, and one of them is rage. And I want to tell you, Raghu, I, I learned this the hard way, that as a woman, as a woman of color, as a South Asian American Punjabi woman, I was just always taught to suppress my rage, to be ashamed of my rage, to wrestle it down as soon as it rose. I mean, I had to be a good girl, be polite, you know. Uh, don't show your teeth, like keep the peace, um, find a, a way to solve it as a peacemaker. And that means that there's no room for rage in the equation. And it wasn't until um, I finally broke my silence around my own encounter with sexual assault, which I, I write about in the book, that I saw my mother stand up for me with rage in her eyes mm and fury in her heart. I had never seen that kind of rage in my mother before. And she looked at my grandfather and the others and said, for too long have women been silenced in our community, not my daughter. Let her break the silence. And I learned afterwards that that maternal rage (laughs) showed me that that rage is the biological force that protects that which is loved that she could summon that rage Mm, for me, even when she couldn't summon it for herself. And she was teaching me how to tap into that rage. And so I, I have, I think um, I've learned now to honor my rage, to protect my rage, to see my rage as carrying information. Audre Lorde says our rage is loaded with information and energy. And so the goal is to be in relationship with it. So just as women and girls have been often taught to suppress their rage, many men and boys have been conditioned to let it explode in in the form of violence or acts of machismo. And so the goal, the solution is not to repress it or to let it explode, but to give it safe expression so that you can be in relationship with it, to dance with it. I mean, safe containers. Sometimes I go into the closet and I just throw pillows on the ground. Like it could be that, it could be screaming, it could be art, it could be writing, it could be just raging, it could be tears, it could be shaking, sweating. Our indigenous traditions have so many ritual containers to help us process grief and rage. Because there's wisdom in that. Of course we have to move through our rage. And once we release our raw reactionary rage in some kind of container, then, then we can choose how to harness that energy into creative action in the world. Ah, Think about the rage in Jesus's eyes when he overturned the tables of the money changers. You know, think about Kali, the fiercest form of the goddess Durga with her tongue rolling out the divine mother. The, the, The aim of divine rage is never vengeance. The aim of divine rage is to reorder the world. And that is what we are seeing in our streets. And for those of us, especially those of us who are not black, Can we become accomplices to help the rest of the country understand how to read that righteous rage that Black folks have had to suppress for so long? Can we engage in the dance of harnessing that rage in in our social movements? And I, I think that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing now, we're seeing rage and we're seeing it as a part of revolutionary love. 
Yeah, and this section was really quite helpful for me because of my own, you know, dealing with the the fear, just the fear of rage. You know, and yes. uh, it, it's something that got inherited oh, through my family. You know, uh, it's uh, father and his father. It's it was a hand me down actually, and uh, so it was. Uh, it is, and I do believe this is. As you say, you know, with men, there's far too, you know, uh, that expression is, uh, has turned into violence 99.9 times uh, out of 100. And uh, I think that uh, at this point that we do need to, especially, I mean, men in general, but certainly in this particular instance, look inside ourselves and see, see how we maybe are opting out using that as an excuse mm. of not wanting wow. to harm uh feeling like you're you're going to harm somebody and you you know i mean that's what's in me so i think this is yes. a really great thing to to take a look at for all yes of us. so what would be your safe expression what would be a way that you could put the rage on the outside of you be in relationship with it in a way that didn't harm yourself or others I'd have I I would say that um, it's impossible for me to do anything until I get out from behind the uh, I call it the mini me guy, okay, <laughs> where all I'm thinking of is my you know my self interest, my self cherishing. The Buddhists call it. I love that term. And uh, if uh, it's it's using the breath basically is my only. Mm only thing that i know that actually can work in the moment uh is mm -hmm. is using breath and mm -hmm. uh once that happens then there's there there's an equalization process and then I, I you know i'm much more free to act than i i would be without that mm -hmm. and and by the way uh, uh the other thing here that um is such a important part of of everything in terms of us being able to act um and you know can, can obviously what i'm speaking of is 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 doing the work on myself so that i can act right and you've mentioned it yes. and it's in the book and you, we've just talked about it it's all all one thing the the inner work and the outer work you know outer yes. social action and and a big part of that is 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 listening, which is a part of your you know a major part of of, of the book, uh, and and in it you say deep listening is an act of surrender. Mm. We risk we risk being changed by what we hear. Mm. When I really want to hear another person's story, I try to leave my preconceptions at the door and draw close to their telling. Mm. That is what I'm, you know, so the ability to get in, in that place, to be able to surrender is to let go of all these preconceptions that we have about our, ourselves and whoever else we're around. So yeah. deep listening, um, I, I, I can't remember who said it, but the mo somebody said, um, a great uh, woman writer, the most important act you can do for another human being is to give them full attention. Mm. so mm -hmm. 
listening, deep listening with that kind of attention, that's something else that we lack uh, big time. And um, so then we have, if, uh, I love, that's why I love what you say, you know, it's, it's an act of surrender. Yes, yes. And, and, and that means that you have to risk um, it changing you, you know, that you might be changed by what you hear. It doesn't mean um, giving a pass to hateful beliefs. It doesn't mean relinquishing your own deepest commitments to dignity. It means expanding the circle of care and concern to include even those who you'd want to push out. Mm-hmm. And I really reckoned with this when um, 15 years after Balbir Singh Sodhi was killed, uh, his brother, Rana, and I decided to ask ourselves, you know, who is the one person we have not yet tried to love? And we called Balbir Uncle's murderer in prison mm. for oh, Frank yeah. Roke. <laughs> and in the beginning, honestly, I thought it, this was a mistake. I could hear Frank saying, well, I'm sorry for what happened to your brother, but I'm sorry for all those who were killed on 9-11. I began to feel my rage rise as I was trying to protect Rana. But perhaps because I was there and guardian and raging and trying to protect him, um, he had the space and the ability to keep listening. Mm. And Rana could hear what I could not hear. He said, Frank, this is the first time I've heard you say you were sorry. And that just that act of attention, as you named it, that Rana gave Frank just changed everything. Rana, Frank said, yes, I, I am sorry for what I did to your brother. And when I go to heaven to be judged by God, I will ask to see your brother. And I will hug him. And I will ask for forgiveness. And Rana said, we've already forgiven you. Mm-hmm. I learned that forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is freedom from hate, from grasping so tightly to hate. And sometimes we are not ready to forgive. It took us 15 years to process our grief and our rage before we could come to the point where we could wonder about Frank Roque. But once we did that, we changed the story that we weren't victims. We were agents of revolutionary love, and we were able to hear this man's story. And I was able to gain information from it that I could no longer see white supremacists like him as simple one-dimensional monsters. I saw them as deeply complex, deeply human, deeply frail. And I began to get information about what drives them to violence. I know now where I need to point my sword, right? It's at those institutions in this nation that put the guns in the street, put the guns in his hand, that spew the ideologies that make them feel under siege, that give them the beliefs that they have the ability to take life to protect the rest of us. It's the sources of hate, the institutions of hate that are really part of the founding of this country. The belief that some people are disposable. Um, I could not become a better activist or stronger activist without 
these attempts to listen and to love even those who I thought I could not. And, and I want to remind everybody listening that uh, everyone has a different role at every moment in the labor of revolutionary love. And so there may be some opponents right now. And if you think of an opponent and your body gets flushed and you feel all these, this is not the time to wonder about them or to reach out to them. Your revolutionary act is to take care of yourself and your own wounds so that it does not change you and um, you don't let hate grip you. And your revolutionary act is to let others love them. There are others who can think of those opponents and say, I, yes, I am safe enough and I am ready to mm. reach out and to begin that transformative work. Mm. Um, we all have different roles at different times. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we must state this, that you state in the book as well, uh, deep wisdom resides in each one of us. Yes. We have to connect that is so important to connect with that, not feel uh, at a loss. You know, we sometimes it's yes. overwhelming. We feel at a loss, and yes. you know, um, and uh, you know, all the different sacred names are are part of our nature. They really are. Yes, you know? yes. Uh, intuition is super important to be able to connect with that with that wisdom we need to sustain it seems to sustain ourselves so that we can have abundance to be able to go out and, and do what you did in that diner and sit with those people <laughs> you know it, to sit down with somebody we don't agree with and and be able to give the kind of attention that we're talking about the deep listening that we're talking about um so, Which some of us are safe to do, while others need to trust their deepest wisdom and say, this is not my role now. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, a little Re discrimination really, on that. Side yeah. Re really, Raghu, this, this piece about um, our deepest wisdom residing within each of us, I, it took me a long time to learn this. Mm. Um, I feel like I, I had just been battling with a voice in my head for since, really, since since adolescence, this voice that will tell me that I am not good enough or smart enough or strong enough or white enough or sick enough or American enough that I am not enough. And it, it took me a while to identify this voice and I started to call it a name. I called it the little critic. <laughs> and every time I was about to put like my book out into the world, right? It's a week away from this book and the little critic is fluffing up its feathers. Mm -hmm. I imagine this as like a ragged bird and just like squawking in my ear. They're going to eat you alive. And I, uh, after my, my first child was born, I remember just saying, oh, my love. Oh, you are brave and you are strong. And he's a little baby, can't do anything, a newborn. And you are loving and you are just mm -hmm. and you are da da da. And my husband's like, why don't you talk to yourself that way? <laughs> and I thought he's, he's right. And I realized that the only way to do that was to practice, to practice. Like I had to create new pathways in my brain and think the same thoughts over and over in order to start to experience my relationship to myself differently. So I have this journal uh, it's right in my bag here. I call it my wise woman journal. And every day for the last four or five years, I write in this journal throughout the day, a wise woman here, I call her wise woman. Mm -hmm. Wise woman says, oh, my love, it's okay. You're tired today. She usually tells me the state of my body. And then she says, okay, how can you do this next? Mm. 
can you just show up here? Can you do this? She tells me when I need to breathe. She tells me when I need to push, when I need to rest, when I need to work. She tells me. And only after summoning her voice over and over and over and over again, did I start, finally start learning how to love myself. Mm. Mm. Yeah. We're all on that I believe. Path. We are I believe that deep wisdom resides in each of us. Yeah. No, in each of us. Yeah. Keep going back to courage, right? To dig yes. deep and just turn that perspective around. Uh, this was Ramdas's yes. uh, before he passed. The thing that he talked about all the time: just move out of that. Uh, I call it the mini me place. What did you? What's your? Uh, the little critic. The little critic. You got the little critic. Of the, you know, I don't know what he had, but he advised just move out of there. It's like leaving that. Leave that house, okay. And move down to the center of your chest into the loving awareness place, which is yes. no judging, no nothing, which has complete courage and hope and wise hope, as Roshi Halifax calls it, and faith, and is able then to really uh, have actions that, uh, um, that, that accomplish without us expecting necessarily the height of what we think should happen, but they accomplish something. And and there, it's a path, and it, as you say, it's a it's a, a path for you know very long period of time that this this path, and we are at an incredible moment on that path. I think uh, I really like that he located the wisdom in the body, and I I when I invite people to summon their deepest wisdom, I say, well, imagine where does it reside in your body? And some people it's in their heart, some people it's in their in their belly. And mm. for me, it's in the crown of my mind. It's like this golden throne and this wise woman. And for so much of my life, there was a power struggle between the little critic and the wise woman to take the throne. Mm. And finally, it was my birthday, my last birthday, where I said, no more power struggle. I want to banish the little critic forever. And the wise woman, of course, is like, my love, <laughs> we, we need this little guy. We just don't need him in charge. Yeah, right. That's it. <laughs> So, yeah, so she, so I had this ceremony with my, with my six sisters where we put the wise woman on the throne of my mind. And I, I made a vow to be faithful to her for the rest of my mm. days. It's the way that Vahikuru, mm. the divine lives within me. It's through her. And whenever the little critic squawks, she just takes him up and soothes him in her lap and calms him down mm. and then puts him back and then protects me. There's a little critic voice in all of us. What is it? It's just trying to protect us. Mm -hmm. It's just trying to get small. They're going to eat you alive. You're not enough. You know, it's just trying to protect us. But there is a, a wisdom that's rooted in bravery in each of us that, that knows the real way to protect ourselves is to make sure that we live a life of truth and beauty and are not afraid to express mm. our, our, our deepest calling. Or as you say here, because we're at the end of the, our allotted time. And as you say, at, right at the very end of the book, choosing to let in joy is a revolutionary act. Joy returns us to everything good and beautiful and worth fighting for. It gives us energy for the long labor. Letting in joy, therefore, is the 10th practice of revolutionary love the core practice that sustains all others. Joy is the gift of love. It makes the labor an end in itself. I believe laboring in joy is the meaning of life. 
I'll go along with that, Valerie. <laughs> so great. Thank this, you, brother. Yeah, this. Uh, I, you know, I, I believe revolutions happen in these big, grand moments. They also happen in the spaces, the small venues where people are coming together to practice a new way of being. And so may, may in the midst of this uprising, may all of us who want to stay in the labor start to seed pockets of revolutionary love in our own homes, in our own lives, to be part of transitioning America in the months and the years to come. And if we can make an offering, um, the book comes out uh, next week, but we also will have a learning hub and curricula and materials mm. and practices and book clubs. And so folks can go to seenostranger.com to be part of the revolution. And we'll have <laughs> all of this in the show notes and a way to order the book. If uh, I believe this will come out and you can still pre-order it, which is what needs to happen to help. Uh, a book, Get Real Legs, as we've told you before about other books that uh, we've recommended. Yes. Uh, oh, and especially now in a time of pandemic, <laughs> when the bookstores are closed and our book tour was canceled, we are really, really leaning on community to spread the word. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to have it all there. You're going to go to beherenownetwork.com slash mindrolling and uh, links and the, the, the website is Absolutely fabulous, by the way. And uh, you'll be able to get on the newsletter. You'll, you'll be able to just, uh, I mean, there's a wonderful host of material, blogs, all kinds of, you know, uh, you did that great TED Talk, right, back uh, when that I think people would enjoy as well. So, hey, thank you so much. Thank you for being here. And thank you for what you've done here. Uh, with this book, See No Stranger. It is uh, nothing less than spectacular. And you had no idea, of course, anything was going to go on. You've been writing this all last year, I'm sure. And then suddenly this book comes out in the middle. I mean, so, uh, yeah, it's uh, a bit of uh, divine action going on here, as far as I can tell. So thanks so much, Valerie. Thank you, brother. <laughs> we'll see you all next week on Mind Rolling. Go to Be Here Now Network, and we have a host of wonderful podcasters, uh, and uh, I will see you again. Namaste. <laughs>